What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're all making life choices at this time of year. Perhaps a few New Year's resolutions are in the mix, or maybe you think that kind of thing is a load of silly nonsense. Either way, you'll have a stake in a tussle of big ideas coming up as we debate the motion, free will is an illusion. With no further ado, let's join our host for this episode. He's the writer, philosopher and podcaster, Nigel Warburton. Nigel co-hosts the popular Philosophy Bites podcast. His books include A Little History of Philosophy, The Art Question and Free Speech, A Very Short Introduction. Joining Nigel to debate the motion is psychologist Susan Blackmore and professor of genetics and neuroscience Kevin Mitchell. Let's join Nigel now with more. Hello, I'm Nigel Warburton and welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate. Free will is an illusion with Kevin Mitchell and Susan Blackmore. The topic of free will has vexed philosophers for millennia. The basic problem is this, as I see it anyway, and I'm I'm willing to be corrected on this. Look, I'm having a volition now. I'm having a a thought. I'm going to move my right hand. And lo and behold, there it goes. It moves. How that happens, to me, is still a bit of a mystery, particularly as it feels that I'm in control. But at the same time, because I'm somebody who doesn't believe in spiritual explanations, magical explanations from outside science. I think that everything that I am can be explained in terms of webs of cause and effect. And if I knew enough about, or if other people knew enough about my genes, about my environment, um, the conditioning that I've had, the circumstances immediately now, they would be able to predict exactly what I would do because cause and effect just works that way. And there doesn't seem to be room for this magical thing coming in free will, unless you kind of imagine something like a soul inhabiting the body, which we're beyond, I hope. So that's how I see the problem of free will. It's something that's been a problem explaining how free will of the kind of experienced free will could be compatible with a scientific worldview. And um, we're lucky enough to have two eminent scientists to talk on either side of this debate. And there are more than two sides, I have to say. So we're going to begin with uh, an opening speech from each of our our guests. First, Susan Blackmore is going to speak for the motion, free will is an illusion. And Susan is a psychologist who's well known for her books, which explore consciousness, mimetics, evolution, and spirituality, particularly her first book, Beyond the Body, which was hailed as a classic. addresses the unusual topic of of -of out-of-body experiences and was inspired by her own experience of being outside her body. She's a visiting professor at the University of Plymouth, freelance writer, and she gives lectures all over the world. Her latest book is Seeing Myself, What Out-of-Body Experiences Tell Us About Life, Death, and the Mind. So, Susan, could you give us sort of eight or nine minutes just as a general introduction, telling us why and how free will is an illusion? Well, you've done a good job of saying what you think free will is, uh, and I completely agree with you. I would like to say what an illusion is. I've had trouble with this with consciousness um, uh, because people have said, oh, well, you don't think consciousness exists. No, I say it's an illusion. And so I went to the dictionary and looked it up. An illusion is something that is not what it seems to be. And I think consciousness and free will are both examples of that, as is the self. 
who would be the one who had free will. So I would add to your description of what we mean by free will, something like, it's this kind of feeling, well, you, you, you mentioned the soul or the spirit, but this feeling that I inside am, am in charge, that I'm controlling this body, that I'm making my brain do the things it does. Um, and I just want to mention my favorite quote on this, which, um, which probably you, you know already, Samuel Johnson, you know, more than 200 years ago said, all theory is against the freedom of the will and all experiences for it. So we've had an awfully long time of people knowing there can't be, there can't be free will. And yes, I'm sure that it's an illusion. It's an illusion that um, neuroscience is really uncovering now. I mean, neuroscience has just gone bonkers and wonderful in, in, in this century, really. So we can look inside the brain and we can see how the self is made up. You know, there isn't this magical being inside who would be doing, controlling the brain or, or whatever. There is a model of a self, um, a construction inside the brain you know, with the uh, um, body schema organized in the temporoparietal junction, its connections to the controls in prefrontal cortex, the memories being brought up from parietal lobes. And, you know, the self is a big construction. It comes and goes. It's not built up all the time. It comes back and you get the illusion of continuity and you get the illusion of, of being in charge. So the problem has got worse. And that means, worse because of the amazing neuroscience and, and, and uh, understanding of genetics and so on, that means we're even more obliged to actually do something about it and say, you know, well, what are we going to do? Um, you know, when you think about things like moving your arms, you know, most people are happy to say, well, yeah, I didn't do that in my free will. Even the words I'm speaking kind of seem to come out of nowhere. But what about more difficult decisions like, I don't know whether to take that job or whether to go to this place or how about um, whether to join in this debate. Um, so imagine me sitting here at my desk and um, along comes uh, an email that says, would you like to take part in this, in this debate? And I sit there and I think, well, would I? Yes, no, um, I'm tired. I've got chronic fatigue. I do too much. On the other hand, it sounds really interesting. Many people would think that's what requires free will, but I would say that it doesn't. It requires this whole body here with its education and its past and everything else to, um, to make the decision, to weigh it up, to go, these are the advantages, these are the disadvantages, not because they have free will, but because that's what this person does given her background, her brain, her genes, her environment and so on. So that's where we are. Well, what do we do about it? I, I would like to discuss this in two ways. One is just referring to me or you, the individual person, and the other to do with the effects on society if we give up the idea of free will. And I think we have to give up the idea of free will. I've been trying to do that most of my life, since I was a student um, in, in the early 1970s in Oxford, I can remember um, arguing with my boyfriend about it. And I came to the conclusion that, well, there is will. You can have stronger or weaker will, but the will isn't free. You can have freedom. Of course you can have freedom. Some people are freer than others. Some people are in prison. Some people are stuck in refugee camps. Some people have no money and no opportunities or few opportunities. Others are free, to, you know. But it's, that's nothing to do with the will. That's to do with our circumstances. So what happens if we give it up? Well, people are very resistant to giving it up. Um, and I can understand why. It's a bit scary. Um, I've had the great good fortune to interview lots of um, psychologists, uh, uh, philosophers, neuroscientists. Um, Many of these were for my book, Conversations on Consciousness. And um, I asked all of them and many other people, do you have free will? And what I found quite shocking, really, was that the majority of these highly educated, mostly brilliant thinkers said, well, yes, you know, it's, it, it's not really what people think it is. But we have to live as if we have free will. Well, I say that's not so. It's hard to give up feeling as if there is free will. My own response now, uh, after all this time, 
I hardly get the feeling of free will anymore, but it is an intense feeling, as Samuel Johnson mentioned in the beginning. Experience is, is for it. But my response is, oh, here comes that feeling again. Mm, well, it's just a feeling. Get on with making the decisions because that's what, what has to be done in, in this circumstance. And what's the effect of that? Is the effect um, that I run amok and do terrible things and go around murdering people or, you know, at the very least, stamping on frogs. Or, I don't know why I thought of that, why she thought of that. Um, or being unkind or beastly to people. Or, but why? Why would this human being do that if she's been brought up the way she has and been taught to be sensible and polite and so on? And also discover that actually on the whole, when you're nice to people, they're nice back and life's easier. And, you know, life goes on if you let go of the whole idea of free will. This comes up in something else I'm very interested in. I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, but I've been training in Zen for um, decades. And, and within that tradition, it's supposed to end up with non-meditation or non-doing. And that idea is not that this body doesn't do anything. Obviously, it gets on with its life. But it's the idea that there is no longer the sense of this mythical construction of self. There's no longer the belief that, that this is an entity that, that is the doer of the things that are done. And letting go of that in those traditions leads to people being uh, more compassionate, more caring, because they see other people in, in the same way. So it's not so scary. You can do it if you want to. If you really believe that it's illusion, you can do it. And what about the effects on society? Well, this is something that lots and lots of people have argued about. And Harris, Dan Dennett, various ones. The, the fear is that um, society would collapse because our legal system would collapse. Well, I think that's rubbish. I, I, I remember a, a, a wonderful argument I had with the philosopher Dan Dennett. Now, we were sitting at my kitchen table and I really, really pushed him on this free will thing because everything that he's taught about consciousness, that there's no audience sitting inside the brain, there's no one in charge in there, um, there's no central mean, all these arguments that he's had should lead him to say that free will is an illusion. And he doesn't. Why not? I'm pretty sure from that and other conversations, it's because he, like so many people, are afraid of the effect on society that our legal system would break down. But it wouldn't. We would just replace it. Instead of a kind of retributive, you know, punishing you because you're bad kind of approach, we would have to say if somebody does a bad thing, what is the best thing to do for them and for the rest of society? If we punish them in some way, put them in prison or whatever, will that help them to not do the bad things again? Will it help uh, other people? Will it put, deter other people from doing those kind of bad things? Or in some extremes, should we actually lock this person up because they really are a threat to society? All that would carry on. And we'd get away from these black and white lines about are they actually you know, capable of, of making the decisions or so on. They would all be wrapped up in decide what would the outcome would be, knowing that the reason these people do bad things is from their background, their bad luck they may have had, the situations they got thrown into, um, their lack of education, uh, the drugs that they've taken because they couldn't cope, all of those things, we would be, I think, more compassionate and better able to run society. So I don't have those fears anymore. I think we'll be fine. In fact, I think we should all accept the science, the evidence, uh, Johnson's theory about free will, and I think we would all be better off if we accepted that free will is an illusion. So thanks very much, um, Susan. Uh, now we're going to turn to the other side of the debate, where Kevin Mitchell is going to argue against the motion that free will is an illusion. Uh, Kevin Mitchell is an associate professor of genetics and neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin, and he's the author of Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brain Shapes Who We Are. He runs a popular blog called Wiring the Brain, and his work has appeared in many publications, including Scientific American, The Guardian, and Psychology Today. But probably most relevant is his new book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. So Kevin, could you speak for about nine minutes on how evolution gave us free will and you know, why you think Susan is wrong? Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks very much um, to Nigel for the introduction and to Sue for the introduction to the topic, which I think is 
um, sets the stage really nicely because it highlights these challenges that um, arise when people think about free will. So my own feeling is, first of all, that the debates on free will are framed often in ways that are unhelpful. And I think there's three ways in particular. And the first is to take a really absolutist kind of framing where you say you have to be making decisions in a way that's absolutely free from any prior causes whatsoever in order for that to qualify as free will. So if anything is impinging on you, anything from your past, any goals for your future, any information that you have, then you're not really completely free and it doesn't count. It's just not free will. Um, and, and to me, that's just a really incoherent notion because any, any sort of entity that's making decisions in that way, basically for no reason, because any reason is a cause, would just be doing things at random. It would just be a random behavior generator. It wouldn't be a self. I mean, the whole point of being a self is to continue to do things, including making yourself persist through time. And so for me that, you know, if you want to frame it in that way, it, it just doesn't even get off the ground. Um, so I would rather ask, um, you know, more pragmatic kind of questions about what sort of control we have. Now, another framing, which is what I think Nigel and Sue both sort of spoke to, is this idea that it has to be somehow just your conscious self that's in charge, some, some kind of thing that, that isn't just your brain working, or again, it doesn't count. If neuroscience shows how the decision-making is happening, then you can say, well, it's just your brain making you do things. It's not you. And I think, again, that's a sort of a dualist framing where there's a, there's a physical stuff, but in order for it to count as free will, there has to be some, some immaterial thing, some soul or spirit or mind that's in charge. Again, I think that doesn't get off the ground. It just uh, is incoherent when you dig into it. And so I want to uh, get away from it. And what I want to do really is rather than start with a definition is just describe the phenomenon. What, what do we want to understand? And that phenomenon is that we spend our lives apparently making decisions, choosing actions, deciding what to do, planning our behavior over long timeframes and so on. So how could that be? How could it be that we ourselves, our whole selves, are in charge of things and not just our brains or not just our parts? And for me, as with any complex phenomenon in biology, I think the best way to get a handle on that is to take an evolutionary perspective. So if we can ground our concepts of action and purpose and meaning in, in the simplest kind of scenarios, that should give us a better way to understand the most complex scenario that we know of, which is the human mind. Now, when you do that, though, there's a, there's a third framing problem, which I think um, really almost scuppers things from the get-go, which is called determinism. And that's the idea, especially predeterminism, that the low-level laws of physics just predetermine everything that's going to happen, just because everything is made of atoms and molecules and quantum fields, and the way they interact is completely determined by the laws of physics, and there's just one possible future. Now, if you accept that premise, then you end up doing one of two things. Either you dismiss free will, which to me is dismissing the entire fundamental phenomenology of our existence, or you end up tying yourselves in knots, trying to show that moral um, responsibility can be compatible with that kind of determinism, even when there's no possibility of choosing. There are no possibilities at all, in fact. And that challenge is much worse because it doesn't just rule out free will in humans, it rules, rules out any kind of agency whatsoever in any kind of organism. How could we say that any living being is doing something when everything just unfolds in a predetermined way? Now, thankfully, physics doesn't say that. Physics doesn't say that the universe is determinist in that way. There's fundamental indeterminacy at lots of levels, the quantum level, but also classical levels. So what that means is that the future is radically open. What happens in the universe is underdetermined by just those low-level laws of physics. And if we start from that premise, then we flip the script. We don't need to ask, where does freedom come from? How could there be choice? The freedom comes for free. It's just in the universe. But now we have to ask something else. Given all this indeterminacy in the world, and in the noisiness of its own parts, how can an organism control what happens? Of all those possibilities, how can it make happen what it wants to happen? And fortunately, that challenge also presents the solution. 
because the fact that the future states of the system, both the organism and the world, are underdetermined by the low-level details, that opens the door for the way the system is organized to have some causal effect. The organization can constrain the possibility space. And there's nothing magic about that idea. It's utterly commonplace. It's what lets us design our artifacts so they can do certain things and have certain functions. And that kind of functional organization is exactly the defining characteristic of living beings. It's why we call them organisms um, at all, in fact. And it becomes clear if we really think about, well, what, what, is, it, what is a living organism? What does that mean to be a, to be a living self? And really, it's a set of interlocking processes. So even at the simplest thing, like a single-cell bacterium, it's a set of, of, in this case, biochemical processes that collectively maintain the dynamic pattern of the whole thing. And they create an autonomous entity that persists through time. And it does that because it takes in energy and it performs work to stay out of equilibrium with the rest of the environment. So... One way to do that, that's a challenge in order to, to stay organized like that and persist through time. But one way to do that in a dynamic environment is to be able to move around because organisms need to take in energy. Well, they need to find food. So they need to know what's out in the world and they need to be able to move around and they need to have some sort of internal machinery that can direct purposeful behavior. So even the simplest organisms are doing that. They're approaching some good things. They're avoiding some bad things. Um, and, and so the causation is not just instantaneous physics. They're doing things for reasons already. Now, when things got more complicated, when we had multicellular life that has neurons and muscles, they, that's a system to coordinate all their bits so they can move around in the world. And basically, they have to choose to do one thing at a time out of some repertoire of actions. And it may be a simple repertoire, or for us, it may be very, very complex. So they have to take in information Figure, what, figure out what's out in the world and then decide what to do about it based on their own state, their current goals, their current behaviors, and so on. And so as, as evolution proceeded, those systems for control became more and more complex, more and more elaborate, and more and more internalized. So for example, if we're doing vision, then we have to not just sort of detect something, we have to infer what's causing it, right? What are the causes of the pattern of photons that are hitting my retina right now? And to do that, we have to have some internal representations. So that's where cognition really gets off the ground because there's an internal space that represents things that are out in the world and our current states and goals and so on and, and beliefs, and then uh, lets us figure out what to do. And of course, nervous systems also give us the ability to learn from experience. So we can learn about objects, what are their properties, what are their causal relations and contingencies, what can be done with them or by them? What are, our, what are our actions? Which ones turned out well? Which ones didn't turn out well? All of that is used to guide our behavior, to build these models of ourselves uh, and the world and predict further into the future. So when we're thinking about organisms' uh, agency and, and the way they control their behavior, they're actively pursuing their own agendas through time, not just moment by moment. They're flexibly accommodating to changing circumstances or new information but they're not just reflexively acting, reacting to stimuli. They're directing and managing their behavior for their own reasons. So I think that's a, a, a perfectly good defense and naturalization of agency. And when you get to primates and you get to humans, that all gets much more sophisticated, much more internalized, where they're really doing cognition. It really is mental content that's driving what happens, not just the details of neural firings. And ultimately, you get to what we call metacognition, the ability of humans to not just have reasons, but to reason about those reasons. We can think about our own thoughts. We can represent the content of our own mind to ourselves in a reflexive kind of a way. And we can deliberate about things, really. Not, you know, it's not, doesn't just Absolutely. seem that way. We really do that. So what I would say is that like other animals, we have very complex control systems. We are complex selves that are much more than just this conscious tip of the iceberg. And all of that is guiding our behavior for reasons that are our reasons, not the reasons of our parts. And because we have those capacities and this metacognitive ability to reason about those reasons and exert conscious cognitive control, then I'm happy to call that free will.
Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to ask each of you a question first and then invite you to respond to each other. So um, Susan first. Um, that was really interesting and um, persuasive in many ways, but I've got a, um, a concern with it, that you seem to be inviting me and others to choose to relinquish the notion of free will, which ends up being a kind of um, impossibility on your own theory that you choose to relinquish the idea of free will because you don't choose because you don't have the freedom to choose. Yep. It's very, it's weird and paradoxical. And I, you know, I wonder why this person here has taken this route. Well, probably because the things I was learning in my degree in psychology and physiology, or the fact I had this boyfriend writing about weakness of the will, or the fact that I stumbled across a brilliant Zen teacher um, a few years later, those things have carried through and that's what's happened. And there's a consequence. There are people like this going around saying it's an illusion. And the, the, uh, anyway, the idea is in the air, you know, it's been around a long time, but getting more so because of neuroscience. So those are the things that have led this person here, this human being with agency. There's a whole human being with agency. But what there isn't is uh, a little me inside who, who, is, who persists and who makes the decisions. That's how I see it. Uh, Kevin, I wonder two things. First of all, I'm not in a position to judge your claim that physics is at a certain level not giving a determined universe. So that, I mean, if we accept that premise, which questions one of the premises that are usually involved in setting up the free world debate, it still doesn't seem to follow that we have agents because it depends how wide the range of choices available are and how, just how we put ourselves in a position to decide between them if we do decide. So that was one topic. Mm -hmm. But more generally, um, would it be fair to say that you're a compatibilist? You are like Daniel Dennis and David Hume, somebody who doesn't think there is a conflict between the idea of the natural world as described by science and the phenomenal world as described by more or less every human being in terms of their freedom of choice, that the two are not um, at odds with one another, but are entirely compatible. And Daniel Dennett talks about um, uh, the kind of freedom that we have as the only free will worth wanting. Mm. And that's the free will of not being manipulated by others. Uh, freedom comes from choices made from within rather than from without, crudely. Yeah, I think, um, so for me, um, I take Dan Dennett to be saying that that he's he takes moral responsibility to be compatible with the idea of physical predeterminism. So he he accepts the premise that there's only one future possible physically. And then he says, nevertheless, we can treat organisms as if they make choices because they're complicated. Um, and therefore, we can protect the idea of moral responsibility. And I that that idea just seems incoherent to me because there are no choices, there are no possibilities, there's no reasons, there's not even any causes in a deterministic universe. And anyway, physics doesn't say that that's the way that things are. So, um, so I would say I'm absolutely uh, a compatibilist when it comes to thinking there's no magic required for an organism as a complicated system to be in charge of itself. I don't think that requires any any magic. What it does require is maybe a change from thinking about causation just in an instantaneous physical way to thinking about causation in a historical way. And that for me is the really key perspective shift that's required here because the causation in, an, in a living organism is not just instantaneous. We don't get a full explanation of what's going on and why it happens. Things happen, we have our own reasons because of things we've learned in the past or because of evolution and our development and directed towards things in the future. So for me, the self only makes sense, not in an instant, there's no such, the concept just doesn't apply in an instant. It only applies longitudinally as a temporally extended. Um, and, and so, yeah, I don't see any conflict there with this idea of say top-down causation. It's the kind of thing we see all the time in like in computer programs. That's why we can have this conversation over, over the computer here is because computer programs are written in such a way that they cause physical things to happen based on the intents and desires of the people who program them. So um, yeah, I don't think we need to, to 
worry that there's any supernatural mysticism at play. We can we can take a very naturalistic uh, approach to it. I hope. But just to come back on that, you make a big distinction between organisms, which to varying degrees have control of the kind that leads you to talk about free agency and mere matter, as it were. And surely there's something when language comes in that is much more than just um, responding to stimuli in that kind of immediate way that the majority of animals do. There's something very special about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, th I didn't talk about it here, but yes, the sort of the final stages in human evolution, when we get language and we get culture, that gives us a, a kind of a, of a, first of all, it gives us a kind of a cognitive clarity because it, it really, really precisely labels ideas and concepts so we can use them in more clear ways um, just individually, but it gives us collective power, right? Collective cognition and communication. Um, and I mean, it shows, first of all, that we really are reasoning about our reasons because we can tell each other about them. And, th and there's a huge adaptive advantage to be able to do that when you think about collective action. So yes, I underplayed it, uh, or I didn't mention it, but absolutely language and other aspects of human cultural evolution are hugely important here in taking us way beyond the agency that other animals have. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Thank you. So, Susan, do you want to come back? To I absolutely want to come back. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm baffled. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically telling a story about evolution very well, that's fine, about how human, human organisms attain agency and how they attain more agency and more kinds of agency. But that doesn't get at what most people think about free will. Now, in your beginning, you kind of almost completely rejected what most people think about free will, but not completely. I think what's happening here is that it's important to make the distinction between the physical organism, which is an amazing agent that's evolved with more agency than any other creature on the planet, as far as we know, um, and the way it feels that in addition to this whole body, there is inside this me who makes the decisions. You talked about continuity, and I think that's really important. The organism is continuous. Oh, yes, we shed cells and things change and so on. But there is a continuity of this body from when it was a baby to when it's going to die. Now, is there a continuity of a self? Well, no. 
Um, the self is a construction that comes and goes. It disappears in sleep and pops back in lucid dreams sometimes um, and then starts up again in the morning. It's never exactly the same. It's similar because it's made by a similar brain. Um, again, that's the, the Buddha's idea of no self or non-self is there is no persisting self. And it, it, it's an illusion. So you have, I think you've done what Dan Dennis done. I'm sorry, keep, keep talking about him, but he, I, I can see why. Um, which is really to say, you've talked about human freedom, how these organisms have acquired more abilities to do more things and more clever ways of thinking and talking and thinking about reasons and so on. But that doesn't mean that there's free will in the sense that I'm sure most people think about it, that it's the me inside who does it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, I think you touch on something that, that's really interesting there. First of all, I'm going to absolutely disagree with you on the idea that our psychological selves don't, aren't real or don't persist. Um, we have our memories, our habits, our dispositions, our attitudes, our policies, our long-term commitments, um, yes, our, char yes. our character, which really does persist. Absolutely. That's why we recognize each other as being the same person through time. Of course, we don't persist in a static way. We persist by changing and, and adapting and so on. But there's a through line, which absolutely is a real thing. And I think just because you can't localize it in the brain somewhere, which seems an odd thing to want to do anyway, uh, doesn't mean it's not, it's not uh, a, a, an entity or, or it just because it's not an object. So if we think about it as a set of, of you know, relational properties between all the elements um, that, that make up our psyche, then yes, there's a self and it, and it persists through time. Now, is it what people think it is? Um, I don't know. I, to me, that's a separate question, really, because um, there's a sense of self, there's a sense of agency and free will, and, and what those things feel like, to me, is a different question from whether there really is agency and really is a self and really is free will that, we, that we're engaging with. It's an important question, but it's not the same one. And I, and, but also, I mean, finally, I, I would say, I don't know what everyone thinks about it. I mean, you said with, with some confidence that people think there's a little me inside my head, and maybe that's right. But maybe they also think, you know what, uh, maybe they perfectly recognize, I mean, since the time of Freud, at least, that there's lots of subconscious goings on that are still part of my decision-making processes. And that while I, you know, I'm doing habits and, and ideas are popping into my head and so on, I'm not really uh, consciously in charge of those things. I could be, right? I, th th I could introspect about them. I could, yeah, I could examine those and change my mind about them. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that people have that view where it, it's completely homuncular, little, little me sitting inside there. Um, I think many people would be perfectly happy to, to recognize that their selves involve much more than that sort of just that conscious bit. Well, I'm going on partly lots of lectures I've given and lots of asking people, but also there have been many surveys asking people what they believe about, about free will um, and that, that the kind of thing that they do tend to believe, um, that, that, that ultimately it, it's me. So the question then from what you've just said is, is it actually the construction? And we do know where in the brain it's going on. We know quite a lot about the construction of self in the brain. And is it that that makes these critical decisions that I felt I freely made? Or not. Um, I, I think it not because it involves all those other things. But I'd like to pick you up on something else. This seems fundamental to your argument. You have taken the indeterminacy of the universe, which really refers to there being random events, radioactive decay, and all these kinds of things, and, and uh, subatomic sort of things that all kinds of things can um, happen. Also, I suppose, chaos theory, things that happen because of, you know. But this doesn't change the whole. That doesn't give people the ability to make decisions, uh, to change the world. You, you, you seem to be implying, but maybe you can correct me if I've misunderstood this, that with all our clever brains and the way we think, we can change the world to change these, these random or chaotic processes to go in one direction rather than another, which would seem to me to be paranormal or psychic. I mean, yeah. we can't affect, there have been lots of experiments on whether, because I used to be a parapsychologist for my sins, um, on whether people can influence random number generators by the power of their mind, and they're not very convincing evidence. No, that. no, no. I, I, I pro must have got this wrong, but that, I don't see how, and, and nor does Dan Denick, because he's very no. clear about that, yeah, how yeah, any no. terminacy would 
give a, a loop for that's a space. The, that is indeed the tricky, the tricky bit. So first of all, let me just say, if the world were completely deterministic, there would be no there'd be no agents to talk of whether they're having agency or not, right? You just would never have evolved. Um, in fact, the universe would never have evolved the way it is because even to get galaxies, you had to have some quantum fluctuations in the early universe to get some inhomogeneities, right? So that's an example of little, little uh, quantum fluctuations causing massive things on, yeah. on a massive gal galactic scale. Okay. So, so of course the rejoinder is, well, indeterminacy doesn't get you free will either if I'm just doing things because of random events. And that's not the idea. The idea is that it's underdetermined by the laws of physics, the way that the system will evolve. There are many, many possibilities. What that allows is that the way that the system is organized can constrain that possibility space. And as I said, that's utterly commonplace, right? It's why we have uh, designed systems. It's why we have policies and strategies in businesses and organizations all designed. It's why we pay football managers so much, right? Because they impose a strategy top down on their players. So there's nothing mysterious about it. Uh, and it wouldn't be possible for that to have any causal effect if all the causes were down at the bottom and they were and that were causally complete. So that's the idea, is that there's some causal slack in the system, as uh, philosopher George Ellis likes to put it, which allows the organization of the system to do functional work and causal, causally effective work in, by constraining the possibility space. And that is exactly what living organisms do. That's how they stay alive, by constraining their bits to remain their bits and not to fly off into the rest of the universe. Can I... Um... All this is wonderful for explaining how we get agency, but you know, there's no point in denying that we have agency and that my cat has agency of a much more limited extent. That's, that's what you've done very successfully, talk about the evolution of agency, but that's not the same as the evolution of free will, which is this, this sense that it's not just down to what this organism is doing, but also a me who is controlling this organism. Yeah. And that seems well, to be left out of the story. Can I, can I, um throw an example in here and ask each of you what you would say about it. You mentioned football. Something always intrigues me about sports. So somebody's going for goal and there's an easy pass they could make to a fellow player. They choose not to, they go for goal. After the match, the commentator says, why didn't you make that pass? And the player tells a story. Now we think it was a free choice that that person made. They could have, they could have shot for goal or they could have made the pass. But in that split second, there's no interior monologue going on. There's not enough time. There's what, what's going on there? So Susan, what, what would you say is going on there? We'd say it's a free choice. You know, they, they weren't forced to shoot for goal. I would say would it's a choice, describe. definitely a choice, um, but it's not free in the sense of if, if you could really look into all the situations um, and find out what was going on, you would see that this caused this and this caused the other and that the, the memory of previous similar examples or what things that you watched other people do or the feeling of the pain in your leg or any number of things that would have contributed to that decision did it. And then after the fact, you know, in life we confabulate all the time. All I mean, I've worked mostly on consciousness and there's so much stuff on, on how uh, we attribute to this magical thing called consciousness all sorts of um, uh, decisions and choices when the mechanisms are, are making them happen. So I, I would be quite happy with that, applying to that football as to everything else in life. Kevin, what would you say? Uh, well, a few things. First of all, I think there are many instances where we are not consciously deliberating on things or consciously deciding on things, right? And, and that might be one example where things are happening super fast and we're just having to make split second decisions. Um, and that's fine. I don't think that means that we never consciously deliberate about things. So that's the first instance. The other is to think, well, what's actually going on in that, in that moment? And I think it, you know, as Susan said, it draws on all that past experience. It draws on all the learning, the memory, the procedural skills that people have, um, you know, judging the possibility space, having a goal, literally in this case, having a goal. Um, and then figuring out well, what's the optimal thing for me to do, right? And so some of that, most of that happens subconsciously. That's fine. That's good, right? For most of our behavior, if we had to think all the time consciously about what we're doing and how we're going to do it, we'd be dead, right? I mean, we have to offload loads of that stuff 
to our subconscious. And so, you know, habits get a bad rap. We're always thinking about bad habits. Most of our habits are good. They're adaptive. That's why we have them. So, um, yeah, so I would say there's all kinds of stuff going on subconsciously in that, in that scenario. And actually, for most of our behavior, it is caused by prior things that have happened in the sense that it's informed by them. And it's, it's also informed by what we want to happen in the future. And uh, yeah, all of that is adaptive. And on top of that, we have occasionally these, these abilities to engage conscious deliberation, um, which you wouldn't want to do in the scenario where you're you know, running in on goal, but you do want to do when you're thinking about more you know, complicated things and when you have the luxury of time um, to do that. But would you call that an example of free will or is it a case where it's not free will because you didn't have time to reflect? I mean, how, much, how important is the notion of conscious reflection to your concept of free will. I, I guess I'm less concerned with saying this was an exercise of free will and that wasn't and then with, with that, than with just saying we have the capacity for free will in general. And by free will there, what I mean is conscious cognitive control. So conscious, just conscious control is the, the essence of free will. Yeah. That, that for me is the extra bit that I would say, so I, I would not apply the term free will just because it's really loaded, right? It's a really loaded term. I don't, I wouldn't apply that to other creatures, non-human creatures. So I think what makes humans different from, from the agency that other creatures have is this extra reflective capacity, right? And it could be, we could call it metacognitive conscious control if we want to. I think that would maybe would do the trick. Um, and again, I think there's, you know, we need to d distinguish that capacity from the sense of what that feels like, which I think is what I take Sue to be talking about. Sue, would you like to come back on that? Yes, please. Uh, this is great fun. But, um, because you're bringing in another magic. You're just bringing in consciousness there. You're talking about the subconscious and the unconscious in 100-year-old Freudian terms, um, which really don't map on to what we know about now. But more critically, the idea of, I've written it down, even conscious cognitive control. What on earth does that mean? There's this extra special thing called consciousness that comes in. It, it doesn't make any kind of sense. It's just calling on something that we can't measure, we can't see, we have all kinds of problems with, apart from what people say they're conscious of. Um, you've spoken about Dan Dennett, so you must be familiar with his um, analysis of all the traps that we fall into, thinking that consciousness itself is something that has power, that can control things. I don't think that's true. I can be wrong about this because we are in such a difficult state with trying to understand consciousness. So I'm open to, you know, completely having to change my mind. Um, but really, I think it does not make sense to call on this consciousness as though it were a power and does things um, or even to know what we are conscious of or what we were conscious of in the past or whether we did things consciously. These are all up for grabs. It's really, really tricky. So I think it's illegitimate to bring in conscious cognitive control to help you out with, you know, getting away from the fact that free will is illusory. Now, yeah. I'm conscious so, of the clock ticking. Let's do reply because I want to know what no, going to Next, you reply. But could you reply in the context of getting a little summing up of where you stand as well. And then I'll invite Susan to do the same and then we'll have to Sure, sure. So Sue, of course, is absolutely right that, that consciousness is, is incredibly complicated. We don't really understand it very well. Uh, but I think we can describe things that are conscious experiences or, or that aren't. And we can have uh, instances where we have conscious control or don't. And there's lots of neurological conditions, for example, where people don't have conscious cognitive control um, of their behavior. So it doesn't have to be something completely mysterious, even though we don't know how it, it, it is generated or exactly everything about it, we can at least describe some phenomenology that distinguishes um, conscious from, from unconscious or subconscious or non-conscious uh, states or actions and so on. So, um, and, and we're doing it now, right? We're con I'm consciously deciding what I'm going to say. I'm consciously lifting my hand up and putting it down. And I, and I know that I'm conscious of my reasons for doing those things because I can articulate them, right? So we have this metacognition that allows us to reason about our reasons and, and demonstrably do that, identify them and introspect about them because we can articulate them to each other. And that has, um, as I said earlier, adaptive value. So, so overall, what I would say is that um, I think we can naturalize ideas of, of free will 
Um, I think we can naturalize them in the context of the evolution of agency. The future really is radically open, but living organisms are designed to uh, determine what happens within that possibility space for their own reasons. So they're really doing things, unlike everything else in the universe. They really have that causal power, uh, and humans have it in spades because we have these extra layers of, of um, cognition and, and metacognition. Thank you very much. Now, well, Susan, could you respond to that and sum up your position, and then we'll have to round, I'm afraid. Well, I think we need to have another debate about consciousness because you have thrown in so many contentious comments there. Um, I would say falling for the classic traps about the power of consciousness and the evolution of consciousness. You said consciousness emerges from, from the brain or something like that, which is very contentious. But let's forget that for the moment. Um, I have much enjoyed having a go at this. I think you have um, done a, a great job of explaining or talking about human agency and how it has evolved. And that is not to me what free will is about. It's something that is sort of over and above. It's more than just the fact that this body can walk around and eat and do the other things it needs to do quite competently. It's something about this mythical me who, who has this control by some incomprehensible means. So I am going to continue for now living my life without free will. And um, I hope that we have spread some ideas for people to think about, about their own free will. Hope so. So thanks very much for that, both of you, to Susan Blackmore and Kevin Mitchell and to Intelligence Squared for organising the debate. And I should say Kevin Mitchell's book, Free Agents, goes into much more detail about the story that he tells about how we got that particular kind of agency. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events and members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.